You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you guys? What is going on? Life is good, right? Isn't life good now? Being vaccinated, being released out onto the world. Uh, Let's see, what's going on with us? We just had such a great uh, two weeks, Gina and I. It was like being thrown back into the deep end with people. Uh, We had a few barbecues, uh, had some friends over, uh, had some people from the industry in and out. Uh, Crew Dog was in town for a week. We got to uh, barbecue. What did we cook? We did, so I did two, two days of barbecues, right? Day one was a smoked ribeye. I've never had smoked ribeye before. I've never tried it before. Those of you who are steak fans know that most of the time when you get a ribeye, it's usually done in like a cast iron pan. Maybe it'd be grilled. And then you sort of finish it off with a little garlic, rosemary, and butter, and you sort of lather that in the pan. It's always really great. But I saw this thing online. Uh, Someone had smoked it. And I was like, fuck, you can do that. That's fascinating. Let's try it out. I'm telling you, it was so succulent, so goddamn good. You end up putting it on the smoker. It's only on there for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And then you reverse sear it. You bring it up to temp. You bring it up to like under a medium rare, reverse sear that. And it is so fucking good. It has that smoke flavor, which is really great in it. It's perfectly cooked. Um, I could not, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, So we did that. I got to hang out with Lance. Lance was on the show recently. I just finished, I don't know the order of operations, but we just last week recorded our episode with the amazing Judith Weston, the woman who has been influencing my career, has been changing the way I do things as a director uh, by reading her books, directing actors. Um, she has a brand new version of that book out right now, uh, the 25th, 25th anniversary of directing actors. I suggest you read it. If you are a director in this business, if you're someone that wants to direct, read it. Especially if you come from the visual world that I come from, so imperative. It's really changing the way I see movies. It's changing the way I plan movies. Um, And it's reinvigorated me with this, this fucking childlike excitement with how I put everything together. I cannot say enough good things about it. Um, Which brings me to today's episode, because today is one of those days that I get to get nerdy with a fellow director, a guy that makes the type of movies that I love, uh, a guy that I consider my peer as far as the uh, storytelling, um, the attention to detail, the love of the craft, um, and just the fucking tone of his film that I recently saw. And I talk about it as you listen to the interview. Um, But it was one of those days where Gina and I sit on the couch and go, hey, do you want to watch a movie? And lately I get really depressed at that selection process. Do you guys feel the same way where you're just scrolling through movie after movie and you're judging them, you're prejudging them, and you're like, seen the fucking trailer for this thing and I already know exactly all the emotional beats and I don't like them. I don't like where it's going to take me emotionally, especially in the horror genre. And I've complained about this before. I feel like horror has been co-opted as the genre that you slap on a project to get it funded these days because the only movies that are getting made, it seems, 
at least for theatrical, are either giant tentpole fucking comic book movies, or hey, we don't want to spend a lot of money, but we want to make a shitload of money on a horror genre movie. And so uh, the classic example of this, and I, I think I've told you guys this on the show, maybe I haven't, but I actually got an opportunity to hang out on set and sit down with one of the producers for It Follows. Love that movie. I know a lot of you guys out there love that movie too. I think it's amazing. And I was incredibly excited about that director's follow-up, which was Under the Silver Lake, which wasn't as good. Still an okay movie. I enjoy the vibe of that movie, but it just wasn't as good. And I remember I was sitting with one of the producers of It Follows, and apparently that movie initially was a drama. Can you believe it? That uh, supposedly It Follows initially was a dramatic movie that the producers, this is all in theory, this is all hearsay, but the producers then adjusted to become a horror piece. Now, if they hadn't done so, we wouldn't have It Follows. But I feel like that's going on a lot with our genre, the genre that I love. Why do I love horror so much? Because horror is one of those few genres in which the audience completely respects the craft. You guys respect the art of filmmaking when you watch a horror film. You sit there, you, you make note of the camera moves, you make note of the effects. You get awards for that stuff when you're doing horror films. And I don't understand at what point in time horror movies were just sort of labeled as the cheaper way of doing things. The genre films, they're not really as important as a dramatic film, right? They don't really take as much. They're a lot cheaper than doing a dramatic film. Why is that? We talk about it on today's episode. We get into it. I'm very excited. And I was happy to hear that he said yes when I asked him to be on the show. I have director Ryan Spindell on the show. Now, Ryan has done a movie. Like I said, I was doing the search through a whole queue of horror movies about families that were dealing with like the death of their fucking parents and like some other sort of soap covered sort of genre shit or the the horror movies that are just soaked into whatever relevant fucking social commentary that's happening right now just feels like it just crowbarred in there and that's the whole marketing campaign behind it where like whatever the uh, not the production company, but whatever the studio is that's releasing it or whatever the outlet is being released on is just doing posts, patting themselves on the back on how fucking woke they are. And then th this film is just that transition for them. It's like, hey, we figured out a new way to make money off of all of our audience members and we're just going to stack this with so social issues. And I just, I see that as we go through this queue of horror movies and I'm like, I just don't want to do it. It gets very depressing to me. Then I stumbled across this film called The Mortuary Collection. Never heard of it before, right? I think, I, saw, I think it was on Voodoo or something. Never heard of it before. Watched the trailer and suddenly, within the first second, and this is what I love about good trailers. Within the first second, you can tell that you're in for quality. There's something about the quality of light. There's something about how the camera moves. There's something about the respect with the music. And you sit there and you go, okay. And then you start watching this bit and you go, did Guillermo do this? Is this a Guillermo del Toro movie? Because he's, he's one of the other artists that do this kind of vibe. What is this? So we get through the trailer 
apparently it's an anthology. Now, most of the time when you see anthology stuff, you're like, okay, maybe one or two of the shorts are going to be good, but then there's going to be a lot of trash in there too, right? Honestly speaking, we know this, but this is all done by the same guy. And the quality's really good in this. And I feel like I know those actors. I at least know the main actor, Clancy Brown. He's amazing. And his voice is amazing. All right, you got me. Right? So we watch it. The movie is so much fun. It harkens back on everything that I love about adventure horror. It harkens, it harkens back to everything I love about Spielberg. It goes back into our childhood, but it feels incredibly current. It's got the elements of Sam Raimi. It's got all that stuff in it. So if you haven't seen it yet, I dare say, with the risk of losing listeners, you stop listening to this podcast and you find The Mortuary Collection on demand and you watch it. Then you come back and start listening to the show again. I dare say that because I think this show well, I think it would be a more enriching experience for you. Speaking of enriching experience, you get to listen to me adjust my microphone. There we go. As it sinks slowly on me. Um, but definitely check it out. Ryan, as I did my research, turns out that he is the same kind of filmmaker I am. It's the type of person that has the respect for the visual medium. The type of person that understands the language of this genre that has been... Uh, diluted lately. And it's such a dangerous thing for me to say that because no one else is saying that. Did you see this thing that they're promoting on the streaming service and they're saying it's the scariest thing I've ever seen? It's not the scariest thing I've ever seen. It's literally like fucking Gossip Girl, but at the end of the scene, someone stabs somebody, right? Or at the end of it, turns out it was a cult. <laughs> it's like a whole other series of movies. It's a whole other thing. And then it, it, they just sort of Put a bow on the top of it, which has sort of a horror thing. Uh, it turns out that there's a ghost in the house, but um, really it's a story about a husband that is cheating on his wife and wants to murder his wife. But there's a ghost in the house. And you're like, all right, I get it. You guys all liked Rosemary's Baby, which did a better job of this because ultimately it was a horror thriller, ultimately. Um, but you guys are just packaging it this way? Ah, fuck. Mike, the show hasn't even started, and you're already ranting. <laughs> so I'm excited to have Ryan on the show today. You're going to hear two directors that love this medium, that love horror stuff. We're going to get into it. We're going to try to stay off of our angry, ranty horses. Every once in a while, we get up on them. But we try to stay off, and we try to show our love and respect for the craft. We talk a lot about how we prep things, we talk about storyboarding, whether or not you should be storyboarding, we talk about how to deal with composers, all sorts of really cool, fun tech stuff, but it's just interesting to hear two guys that I think are gonna become good pals, meet each other on here, and just fall in love with the work that we both do. So strap yourselves in, and I just wanna thank everybody for coming to the show, supporting the show. I've been trying to keep up with stuff. Thank you to Liam who has been in the background running these episodes out as fast as he can. Thank you, buddy. Uh, really appreciate everything that's going on. We're going to be losing Liam for a little bit because he's got a bunch of projects happening over the summer, but lots of big plans for the future. So hopefully everything lines up. Um, and uh, thank you everybody for continuously following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy on Instagram and at the podcast Instagram. That's in love with the process pod in love with the process P O D 
on Instagram. Uh, there you guys have been sending me suggestions for shows. You guys have been interacting with my posts. Uh, you have been drooling over my food that I've been posting. Um, and it's the best place to get in touch with me. Uh, and I, I'm that type of guy that tries to write to everybody. I just recently, big apologies to those of you who didn't hear back from me because I just found a glitch in my Instagram account where if we're not following each other, the messages go into this hidden folder, which I know exists, but there are two options on that hidden folder where it's like current messages and then like top messages. And I clicked on the top messages for the first time and I found a bunch of fucking notes from you guys for over a year ago. So I've been trying to write back to each and every one of you and do the exchange. And uh, I am now once again opening the doors to those of you who haven't seen 12 Cam. You can hear us talk about it on the show. Uh, the short film for 12 Cam. I am now opening back up to those of you who write to me on Instagram and tell me your three favorite horror films. Uh, in exchange, here's what I'm asking. If you haven't done so already, sign up for a free trial at Audible. If you sign up, audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've done this. It's so funny that I haven't verified that. The link will be below in the description of the episode. If you sign up, for free for 30 days, you get access to a free audiobook. You get access to all of Audible's content. They're free content once you're a member. A lot of it's really cool. Um, do yourself a favor. You can find Judith Weston's directing actors on Audible. That's where I started to listen to it. It's a great place to listen to her reading to you the reasons why you suck as a director and you need to change your methods. I think it's perfect. Um, but if you sign up for that free trial, we get paid. Now, if you decide that you got to leave because maybe your unemployment checks have stopped, you haven't been paid in a while, maybe you've just decided that your subscription bill is fucking massive, like mine is, it's fine. I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but cancel it. I don't give a shit. We still get paid. So it's the best way for the show to get money from our listeners. And if you want to see 12KM, you're going to be asked to sign up for a free trial at Audible to support the podcast. And if you've done so already, then we'll figure something else out. Maybe I'll have you write a review. You guys gotta earn this, right? Come on. How much time and energy do we put into making this film? I'm not just gonna give that shit away, man. I'm not gonna charge you for it, but you gotta earn it. Um, and so far, everybody that has done it has enjoyed the experience. And thank you to all of you who have written reviews. I think we're pushing like 350 fucking reviews for a short film on imdb that's insane for a movie that we made years ago and we're still getting reviews on it so um thank you so much everybody all right without further ado let's get into it like i said ryan and i get into horror stuff very excited to have him on the show so do yourself a favor turn up those noise canceling headphones sit back relax and enjoy the brand new episode of in love with the process Ryan, it is great to have you on the show, my friend. Uh, Mike, it is awesome to be here. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thanks, dude. Um, 
that's great to hear. Like, I, I was going to start by flattering you. Uh, the I'm excited to have you on because I stumbled across your movie, uh, The Mortuary Collection, and I was I was randomly looking for some. Look, I'm going to be 100% honest. I was randomly looking for a good horror to watch. And this is a game that me and my girlfriend play uh, when we're like, let's watch a good scary movie. And then I sort of cycle through all of this like family drama shit that is sold as a horror movie these days. And I'm like, I just don't want to feel like shit. I just don't want to feel like shit when I watch all these. And then I saw the trailer for your movie and I went, oh, oh, wait a minute. There's there's a glimmer of hope here. <laughs> um, and we watched it and I was just so pleasantly relieved that uh, there are filmmakers out there that are still making pure, exciting genre horror movies. Um, and yours was clicking off all the boxes for me, man. So I was, thank you for making oh, wow. Yeah. Of course, man. No. Oh, wow. That's, that's, uh, that's the highest praise you can give. I think I'm, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's really awesome. I, I, I think that was our intention when we set out to make it. I think it was, um, the, the script was written a long time ago, so who knows what the intention was in 2012, but <laughs> uh, once we went into production in 2017, um, we had, we put a little, you know, posted on the wall in the office that just said, but is it fun? And the whole goal of the whole movie was, you know, to tell a story and to like weave in some themes and to, you know, hopefully make some creative uh, performances and set pieces and all of the stuff that you get from any horror film. But yeah. also, you know, when we, we were at a crossroads, you know, one, one direction or the other, it was always, which is the more fun version? Um, specifically because we wanted to create a movie that, that does uh, what you're talking about, which is like a sort of a, a warm genre blanket that you can wrap around yourself on a cold October night. <laughs> well, I get that from it. And it's it's funny because you would think, you know, we're both horror nerds. We both love that that genre, obviously. And and as I watch your film, I can tell that you have a, a love and a respect for the craft of making these movies. Like, uh, I'll continue to shower you with some compliments here. I felt like all of your camera work and all of your cinematography in this piece was emotionally driven Every camera move seemed to have an emotional tone to it, an emotional response to it. Um, and everything obviously was supporting the performance, but it just felt like, I think the only place that we're getting that stuff these days is from Guillermo's movies. So I, I felt like you were sort of tapping into that, that bit of Spielbergian <laughs> and that bit of Guillermo. Um, and I fucking dig wow. that. Man. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> I know how hard it is to take compliments. I'll to, take it. Because <laughs> I take them like shit, too. But um, the the thing about it is, is that it's so surprising to me, being someone that is trying to pitch horror movies, being someone that is trying to get horror movies made, how um, that is lacking these days. And how a lot of people, a lot of these... Um, executives don't give a, don't, don't want that stuff. Like they actually like, how do we crowbar open this idea and cram it with a bunch of social messaging and then put a horror stamp on it? Because apparently we can only get financing for horror movies these days. And it's just, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm already ranting. I've only been in this show for fucking four minutes. <laughs> I'm already ranting. But it was just nice, 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 nice to see that you weren't doing that. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, you know, the thing you're talking about is something I talk with my producing partner about all the time. Um, and I think, I, I don't know if it's that they don't want it, it's that they don't know they want it. It's that there there hasn't been um, anything that's really tapped into that in such a long time that there's no comps for them. And so mm -hmm. um, they're scared to take the swing. One of the things we talk about, I'm, I'm just finishing a new script 
right now that's very much in that vein of that sort of Spielberg meets Del Toro uh, horror fantasy family adventure film. Mm-hmm. And the the big thing that I'm sort of dealing with is like, do executives know how to read this kind of movie? Like when, mm-hmm. when the humor comes, do they understand that what the tone of the humor is? And then when it gets really scary, does that throw them off? And, and how do you kind of set the table for them ahead of time before they read it? So they kind of know the world they're living in because, because there is no comps. And I do think that like, I think James Wan tapped into it a little bit with, um, Insidious, especially with the uh, mm-hmm. with the the specs and, uh, and and the other paranormal investigator guys and the, the humor that they kind of brought to the table, mm-hmm. um, but but nobody's gone all in on, on the on the fun factor. I don't think. Um, oh, if you know of anybody, uh, please uh, uh, recommend because I'm I'm always looking for that sort of thing. <laughs> well, it's tough. It's it's definitely tough to find, and it's so hard that I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. I feel like it's few and far between. And yeah, you're completely right. It's about putting them in the right mindset when you do this stuff. Because uh, I always get so annoyed when we're when my writing partner and I are are pitching, and uh, he's he's got his he's got his finger on the pulse more than I do. Like he's he's killing it right now, and he's oftentimes I'm like, yeah, but this is like a comp from this movie from the '70s. He's like, dude, none of these people have seen it. <laughs> like, god damn it! And he's like, yeah, half the execs aren't are, are, like the '90s is where we're supposed to be at. It's not the '70s; it's mm-hmm. the '90s. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> all right. Um, so you're right. It's definitely putting it in the right, putting them in the right mindset when they read it because all this, a lot of the stuff that they're uh, that they're influenced by doesn't have that humor in it, which is interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but and audiences want it too. I mean, I I honestly feel like we're just on the cusp of somebody slipping one through, getting one past the gates, mm-hmm. and it coming out theatrically, and audiences losing their minds for it, um, sort of in the same way that they did for the Conjuring movies. And then suddenly, it's going to be a glut of uh, of these kind of movies. And of course, then they're also going to get them wrong most of the time. But um, but at least <laughs> you and I will get our these movies that we're sort of you know both wanting to make and wanting to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. More than anything. I mean, it's funny because I, I was thinking about um, my writing partner and I always talk about, you know, other movie comps and, and, and specifically in regards to story and structure. And we almost never um, use other horror movies as our comps. Like our, our, the most recent movie that's come out that we've talked about a bunch is um, The Mitchells versus the Machines on Netflix, the animated movie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I've seen the ads for it. I haven't seen it. Is it great? Oh, it's awesome. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. We, we talk about that. We talk about Moana and we talk about Finding Nemo. Those are the, those are the, the structural sort of guideposts um, for our movie that we use because um, horror, especially modern horror, doesn't really play uh, by the same rules that we, we sort of love and that we want to like bring back to the genre. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, before we get too deep into that stuff, let's talk a bit about you. Let's introduce the audience to who you are and, and where you come from. Where did you, where did you, you were born in Maine and then you grew up in Florida. Is that what I read? Is that right? Yeah, I'm sort of a, a 50-50 split. I was born in Maine. Uh, I lived in a tiny coastal town called Jonesport, which is near the coast, mm-hmm. uh, or on the coast, obviously, um, but near Canada. Um, and it was a little tiny fishing town. My parents are physicians and they have a clinic, um, way up in the middle of nowhere. So that was like a very Stephen King, very remote, uh, very sort of rough new England, uh, locale to sort of grow up with and kind of like start getting my horror roots, I think, uh, whether I wanted them or not. And then, um, (laughs) I ended up going to, (laughs) 
Um, I ended up going to high school in uh, in North Florida, uh, and I went to college at Florida State uh, in Tallahassee, and then uh, I moved here. So I, I I've kind of I've got almost all of the coasts locked down except the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> well, look, it makes a lot of sense that you are were at least raised at one point in your life in uh, the New England area, as am I. There's something about being there that just has this old Puritan sort of like pagan horror shit that you, no matter what, even when like just when the, the fall rolls around and you have like those dark trees in the woods and all the dead leaves all over the place, yes. you can't help but feel yes. like uh, it's time to tell a ghost story or hide in the bushes and jump out and scare your brothers and sisters. You just can't help but do it. Uh, I mean, we get the best Halloween up there. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, dude, that's I love sure. it. I miss it. I miss it. I really do. Um, I, I don't miss the winters. I, I'll be honest with you there. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like the visiting in the winter. I don't like the the living in the winter. I, I could kind of do without that. Uh, dude, I, I, like I'm a wildebeest. So for me, I love that. <laughs> I run so hot that just here in Los Angeles, I'm driving my girlfriend crazy because I'm always putting the thermostat way down. <laughs> I'm like, I can't fucking take it. I saw the weather forecast for next week. It's like 99 degrees in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm like fuck. <laughs> um, this is kind of this is kind of an interesting story. I've told it before, but um, but I think you'll you'll appreciate it. So my parents uh, are physicians, and part of the this thing that was happening in the country back in the '70s and '80s was there wasn't enough physicians in the country. So basically, the government would pay for you to go to medical school, hmm. but in exchange, you had to go to a place of need um, and set up a practice and work there for three years, just to sort of essentially any place that doctors. Um, who could afford it would never move. That's where they would send these sort of uh, recent med, med school grads. Um, and so I was born in Portland, Maine, which is a very hip, cool city in Maine. But we immediately relocated to Jonesport, which is this very tiny, very remote, very rural place. And um, when we got there, my parents were taking over the clinic that the old doctor, which who's the guy who'd worked there for like 40 or 50 years or something. Mm-hmm. And he had this, he lived in this old Victorian house that had a, a, a doctor's office attached to it. Um, and so we moved into that house. So our house was connected to the to the doctor's office. But when my parents went to tour it for the first time, they were sort of looking around the house and they're like, oh, what's this door here? And they're like, oh, this goes to the basement. And they went and it was like a classic New England, like uh, dirt floor basement with like stone raw walk walls. But at the back of the basement, there was this heavy wooden door and they opened the door. And, and this is, I swear to God, this is a true story. I remember it as a kid. Um, there was a dentist chair with straps on it in this room and there was 20 to 30 jars with fetuses that he had just been saving oh my god for years oh my god really (laughs) yeah and so my mom was like yeah so if we're moving here um these fetuses have to be gone and so when we (laughs) physically moved there um they'd done something with them who knows what but i do remember that dentist chair being in the basement uh in the corner uh as a kid growing up there and i remember um the whole house having such an ear i mean if I'm being honest, I don't really believe in ghosts, but that house was about as close as I think I could get to believing. That was a pretty creepy place to grow up. Okay, so I'm sure that if we were talking to someone different, they'd be like, man, that must have been so traumatizing on you as a child. But this, there's a part of me that's going, man, I'm so fucking jealous of you. <laughs> I mean, it, it was traumatizing. I'll be honest, it was sort of traumatizing for me because I... Whether it, it be that or many other instances living in that small town that sort of happened as a kid, whether that sort of made me a big wimp about horror mm-hmm. uh, or it was just sort of natural to me, I um, I avoided horror um, 
I would read horror. I would read Stephen King because um, I read all the time, but I would avoid any kind of uh, audiovisual horror until I was like in eighth grade. Um, I just was like scared shitless of it. I, I, I didn't like the idea of being scared. Um, and it's interesting because um, that kind of, when I ended up finding my way back to horror, it was uh, sort of, as you were saying earlier, it's sort of craft. It was all through the craft. It was mm-hmm. seeing movies like Evil Dead 2 and Dead Alive and seeing the amount of craft that could be could go into a horror movie and being really fascinated by that angle and then kind of coming into it sort of th- through the back exit where my emphasis was on photography and production design and aesthetics first and foremost and then all the storytelling components that I sort of latched onto weren't based in any sort of horror uh, sort of context they were all based in yeah, Spielberg movies and, mm-hmm. and uh, science fiction movies, and a weird, a weird amount of Zucker Brothers movies. I watched <laughs> so many Zucker Brothers movies, Airplane and Hot Shots and uh, Top Secret. I mean, I just that was like seventy five percent of what I watched my entire like growing up phase. Yeah, H- how that how that sort of works into what I do now, I don't know. It's probably good that it doesn't work in too much, but um, it created sort of an interesting place to start, I think. It's funny because we're the same generation. I think you're just a year younger than me. So like we'd be buddies at this point because <laughs> it's oh, absolutely, man. Same, in, same influences, same stuff. Uh, r- lately, I've been really digging deep into uh, the HBO account because they have access to all the Warner Brothers shit. And so I've just yeah. been like going back and watching all those Warner Brothers movies that I missed. Last night I watched, uh, I can't believe I hadn't seen it. I watched Tequila Sunrise last night, which had ah. Mel Gibson and Kurt Russell as the leads playing with, um, oh my God, what's her name? Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. So it was the three of them and it was shot. Wow, that's a yeah. that's a hunky, that's a hunky cast. Yeah, dude. <laughs> and it was shot by Conrad Hall Sr. And it was Holy just shit. so fucking gorgeous. I like watched it twice and then I was just uh, sending texts to my cinematographer going, we need to do this, we need to do this. <laughs> it's just this laundry list. But there's such, that whole time period, I'm I'm so in love with that. Obviously, because we were kids when, when that stuff mm-hmm. was coming out. I was so enthralled with it. Um, mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense to me, since your parents were physicians, you were surrounded by medical, medical gear all the time, medical equipment. It makes a lot of sense that you do an anthology around a mortuary at that point, right? Yeah, I definitely have a, a weird fascination or a draw to uh, things that are in the medical field. And uh, I think I've made – wow, it's interesting you say that because I, my, one of my first sort of real shorts that kind of went out and did the rounds was all set in a mental hospital. And uh, then I made one set in a dentist office. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've got some kinks i got to work out for sure. Yeah, it's fun stuff, man. There's something really fun and creepy about – you know, all these different tools, all these different uh, processes, you know, to open bodies and to try to save you. Or to, I love all that stuff. It's There's that creepy element. Like you said, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts either, but there's like this creepy energy that people have around that kind of stuff. Like walking into a mortuary, it's not necessarily that the ghosts of the dead people are there. It's just how weird everybody acts when they go into that space. And it, it's the I perfect- agree 100%. Yeah perfect fuel for for a movie and I, like and and you doing an anthology movie around it i thought that whole setup was was fantastic dude it was really great thank you dude thank you yeah so why did you decide so was it did you start out just doing shorts and then decide that you're going to rope them into an anthology or did you always have the anthology in mind no i so 
Um, you know, I went to film school and and um, we went to sc- uh, school at Florida State University, and we actually had this really incredible directing teacher who really, really, um, really forced us to take a sort of hard look at the craft of short form storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, ob- obviously, because time's limited and, and it's a way to sort of practice. Um, but I fell in love with that format. I just I, I loved the challenges of of telling a complete story, a three act structure within a limited runtime. You know, even, even something that's two minutes long, I think should have a three act structure. So I became really fascinated by the challenge of that. Um, and after film school, I would just make shorts for fun. Um, and some of them did, did really well, but it became clear that the days of you know making a short and then you immediately get a studio feature were long gone. And so that sort of leap wasn't going to happen for me. And um, I knew that, and, and people, you know, the, I think the the dentist short that I made, it's called the root of the problem. People would sort of watch it and they'd be like, oh, is this a proof of concept? And I was like, no, it's just a, a short because I love horror shorts. I'm like, oh, maybe next time do something that's a proof of concept. So um, <laughs> I had been watching a ton of, uh, of horror anthology movies, specifically the um, the old amicus films mm-hmm. and the sort of, you know, the one cohesive, like, you know, wraparound and, and the, the all directed by the same people, the kind of same creative team. And I was like, this is kind of awesome because I can kind of get the best of both worlds. I can sort of tell these short form stories that I really love. Um, but I can also, you know, package them in a way that I could fool a general audience into kind of going in and seeing them because especially at that time, 2012, there was really no place to watch shorts except, festival so i go to a festival and be like look at all these awesome shorts and then you never hear or see them again. exactly yeah yeah um so i i wrote the feature first and then um uh we sent it out and, and we got a really great response uh and even i was working with glass eye pictures do you know glass eye pictures I, I i haven't met but i i know of i know okay of. um and they were trying to get it financed for a while and it just nobody was interested in the horror anthology format and so I said, well, this is great because I want to make another short. I'll just make one of the shorts from this anthology feature I already wrote. So The Babysitter Murders, which is the fourth story, um, that was the most contained. It had two actors in one house, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled that movie out. Uh, I did a Kickstarter campaign. Um, we raised $60,000, and I made that first short sort of as a proof of concept. Um, and then that did the festival circuit, and I got a bunch of meetings. And eventually, um, everybody in the studio world was like 100% no on anthologies. I don't know why everybody told me every step of the way to not do an anthology. And I kept going, I kept saying like in my mind, I wouldn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I would say that's because no one's doing it right. If we do it right, like it'll work. And I was wrong. Um, but I did <laughs> along the way, find a, uh, a creative executive who was like, my boss will never, her name's Allison Friedman. She was like, my boss would never make this movie. It's too small, but I love the script and I love the short can I try to raise money on the side? And I said, yes. And then I didn't hear from her for six months. And then she called me out of the blue and she said, I found a little bit of money. Do you want to try to make this? And so wow, we basically, um, yeah, it was, it was a whole thing. And then we, you know, we were like really excited and, uh, and we had, you know, uh, just under a million bucks basically. And, um, uh, I don't think I've ever said that out loud, but I don't even care anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it out there. Um, and, uh, and so we, we met with three line producers and all of them said, um, there's no way you can make this movie for less than three times what you have. And and even then it's going to be a shitty version of this script. It's just too ambitious. It's too big. It's too weird. It's a period piece. It's got all these locations. It's got a huge cast. Um, and so we, we had this sort of like triage meeting, the three of us. Uh, so it was Allison, me, and then Justin Ross, my, my producing partner. And I was like, well, we just made one of five shorts for 60 grand. Mm-hmm. 
We have about a million bucks. I don't understand. I can't. I couldn't process in my mind how we couldn't make it's four fucking, more segments. And fucking piece it line together. producers, man. Sometimes they drive me crazy with that shit. Yeah. No, I'm with it, you. It, it was, it was awful. And so we basically said, like, look, we know how to make shorts. Um, we know how to make them cheaply and to make them look great. So let's just start shooting this piece by piece. Um, and, and, you know, it, if we run out of money, we'll figure it out. But, like, if we don't do it, we're going to lose this money. And we didn't, we didn't like, kind of cheat the system by, like, not going, like, not, not setting it up as a feature. And we, we did it all properly. We, we sort of worked with the unions and the SAG and all of that to do it correctly. But we just kind of did it in chunks. So we, we shot it in basically um, two, like, significant chunks where we had, like, a 24 to 30-person crew. Mm-hmm. Then we did a third chunk, which was, like, a 12-person crew. And then we did nights and weekends, basically just me, uh, my producing partner. Um, I mean, honestly, it was just me and my producing partner for a good portion of, of the movie, just shooting mm-hmm. nights and weekends until we sort of knocked it out. So we did like puppets in my living room. We built pieces of set <laughs> in my kitchen. Uh, the, the tentacle light switch gag was in my entryway. We just kind of, um, any camera I could get my hands on or any sort of, uh, every time I would build a new prop, I would I would sort of shoot it and checking off this endless list. And we just did that for two years until we had uh, the movie as it is. That's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's so cool to have the skills because we do, we do a lot of the same kind of stuff with a lot of stuff that we've done and to have these skills and to have that ability to be able to just go like, fuck it, I'll just do this here, you know, and to be able to understand props and understand shooting all the stuff on your own and understand that it doesn't matter what fucking camera you're using and to, to, to just sort of break it down to the bare roots which at least with me growing up as a filmmaker that's what it was it was like me a camera and maybe two or three other people and then we were making these things that seemed like they're a lot more expensive i think having these skills that it's it's amazing for us as storytellers but it's also dangerous in the industry because a lot of folks just don't understand it where they're just like how the fuck so you hand somebody a script and they look at it and they go, okay, so you have written in here that there's a helicopter that's going to land and you've got a bunch of people coming into this building. So we got to rent two Blackhawk helicopters. We got to rent this thing and thing. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, assholes, it's sound effects. It can happen outside a doorway and two people come in through the fucking doorway and the audience is going to think the two helicopters landed outside. <laughs> it doesn't need to be that, you know, and it's nuts, man. And when you talk to these line producers, I had a line producer pulling apart one of my scripts uh, and she's an incredible line producer. She's going through and she's like, she calls me up one day and she's like, uh, do you uh, want to put the set on a gimbal? And I was like, what? She goes, would you want to put the set on a gimbal? And I was like, why? Why, why am I, why am I going to put it on a gimbal? And she's like, well, you have it written in the script. There's that there's earthquakes, that there are tremors and stuff. I'm like, have you ever seen the old Star Trek episodes? I'll fucking shake, I'll <laughs> yeah. shake the camera, shake the shelves, and drop some sand from above. And we had an earthquake. <laughs> so when I hear you dealing with that line producers and telling that you can't handle that stuff, sure, there's a lot more cost that comes when you label a movie a feature, and then the unions get involved, and everybody gets involved with that, and then you start to tear it out and everything. Um, but you know, there's also this, this thing, like, I think a lot of folks don't understand how simple it is to make movies a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I, I I think that's ultimately going to be, uh, our superpower, meaning you, you, me, and, and the people who sort of were forced to, to become these like, uh, renegade, uh, multitasking, uh, 
filmmaking machines because um, we've been running with weights on for so long. Yeah. Um, because the, the flip side of that is I, um, I worked on a TV show. Uh, I did an episode of a TV show for Sam Raimi um, called 50 States of Fright. Super and, cool. Um, uh, have you seen it? No, but I, I, I know Ghost House. I've pitched over there. Those guys are fucking awesome. So I have a lot of questions. Awesome. Keep Not to interrupt. Keep yeah, going. no, no. No, they're awesome. But um but it was a Quibi. It was a Quibi project, so it was it was financed uh it, it had a like it was a real infrastructure. Like the crew was like 120 people. There were trailers, there was all everything uh all the accoutrement that comes with it. Um it's something I've never even come close to doing. Um even on the Mortuary collection, which is the biggest thing I've ever done, I was still doing. I was still painting sets like the night before shooting. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time ever, um, well, I could, well, my, my producer brain was immediately like, well, look, we could cut, uh, I don't need, I could lose my trailer altogether. And then it could get an extra, uh, like week long with the special effects guys and I could get extra monster components. But like having that infrastructure around you is incredible when you've been doing things the way we've been doing things for so long, because you're just, you realize that the first thing was like, if I didn't show up, this thing would still probably get done, which is surreal to me to even imagine that. <laughs> and then secondly, you're like, now that I'm not doing all these other things that were spreading me so thin, it used to be directing was like 8% of what I was actually doing on set every day. And when directing becomes 100%, you're like, wow, now I can just put all my energy into making this better to actually paying attention to the, the nuances of performance, actually rethinking things the night before getting there early and, and thinking of new blocking um, and, and really sort of make something exceptional as opposed to just getting by uh, on the skin of your teeth every day and then getting the editing room and hope, hoping to God that like some of the, the ambitious things you tried to do actually pull it off. And so that was really encouraging to, for me to know that, it's not like this forever. There is a place in which we can mm-hmm. actually start to like, mm-hmm. you know, blossom as directors as opposed to sort of survival, um, mm. which is like, which is such an interesting thing. I mean, I listen to a ton. I mean, I love your podcast. I listen to uh, a few select podcasts that are, that are all interviewing filmmakers. And um, one of the things that, that bums me out uh, about it is that it's become so hard to make stuff yeah. that all these interview shows are now just about how hard it is. Like, we hardly ever talk about, you hardly ever hear about specifics of craft and really getting into the art because it's all about like, h- how did you find that $50 to like pull off that extra <laughs> shot to like, and how did you sneak this past the the producers so they didn't know what you were doing until it was already shot? Like that's become the sort of the point of the spear, which yeah. I think is unfortunate because if you get like Guillermo del Toro in a podcast, he only talks about sort of the... The, the esoteric ideas and yeah. the craft and like yeah. why the color palette is, is, is the way it is. Um, so I'm excited for all, all of this sort of next generation of filmmakers to be able to get past the like, Oh my God, can I make something and like get back <laughs> into the sort of art of it all, which is ultimately why we're all here to begin with. Yeah. And it does take a lot to, it's, it's so funny. The, the difference between uh, sort of, running to try to keep a ship together i always say it's like it's like fucking being a submarine captain and there's a bunch of holes in the fucking submarine and then you're going underwater and the crew's freaking out and you're like we're not gonna fucking sink and that that's like that's the game for most of making these things um i dude i i cannot wait to be in the scenario in which i have that support around me to do it because uh it took me years because i used to shoot all my own stuff i was a cinematographer and then i would do this and 
when I did 12 km and, and, and directing a movie in a language I didn't speak, that was when I was like, okay, fuck this. I'm not also going to shoot this and try to do that. Um, and at that point I started, I had the luxury to start to really focus on directing. Um, and I think at that period of my life, I was really sort of focused on the visual aspect. It sounds like you were too, where it's like, this is the aesthetic and I have to fucking make it look amazing. No matter what, that's mm -hmm. what I have control over. I don't necessarily have access to the best actors in the world, even though I would got really lucky on that movie, but I have control over the visuals. And so for so long, that was the definition of my career where it's like, mm -hmm. this guy shoots really beautiful stuff. And thankfully, I, I've been talking about this in the past couple of episodes. Uh, the pandemic really gave me the opportunity to just go like, okay, you could, you're allowed to fucking chill out for a year. And I've been digging really deep into uh, actors' performances and like backstory and and themes and subtexts. And I now feel like I have this new arsenal of shit that I want to come out and not be 100% focused on the visuals all the time. I want to be in that situation where we're recreating sequences. We're living in the moment. We're making these things as so much better than if I was just sitting here at my fucking desk going, okay. So here's what the character's going to do. Here's how he says it. And here's how it's going to look. And here's how I'm going to fucking block it. You know what I mean? I do. It's all, I think about it almost constantly. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because you can, you can, you know, get that like do a favor for the guy who has a techno crane and then get it for a half day for free when like no one's looking and then you get the set and you can have all these complicated things come and you're going to have like a visual effect component. You could work for like weeks to create this one thing or you can put an incredible actor into a frame that's like dead on and watch them go and it's twice as impressive. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that like you want to be able to experience and you want to be able to expand upon. And and I would say, I mean, having having seen your uh your shorts, um, I think you got the visual stuff locked down. I think you are ready <laughs> to you. sort of to to to, to go beyond because your visuals are are phenomenal. And I have I have questions about your films as well, man. Holy shit. Well dude, it's a, it means a lot to me that you're saying that because like I said, the the smooth and the creaminess of your visuals uh in your film were just were just so tasty. And that, that's the only way I could say it. It's like when I watch something that is lit so nicely and I watch something that has so much meaning behind each of the camera moves, it's like having a great plate of food where I'm just like, oh, this tastes so good. And how he did that thing was really fucking nice. Um, so yeah, Thank dude. You. That's the, awesome. I, I feel yeah. like this I, whole this whole episode is just gonna be us jacking each other off. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so close. <laughs> So it is time for our sponsor reads. Uh, Got to support the men and women that support the show. And without their help, uh, there'd be no show. These guys help us pay for everything that we need. All our stupid little overhead things. I just got charged again to redo our hosting fees. On uh, we, What do we host? We host on SoundCloud. So just had to redo our SoundCloud account. Um, and I can't do that stuff without these sponsors. And our first sponsor, the guys over at Puget System, they always answer our call. Anytime I call them up and say, hey, I have some new ideas for the show. I've got a really great idea for doing this. These guys step up. I love them for it. They support us. They support artists. And if you're someone that is in the business for a brand new computer, uh, 
suggest you go check out Puget Systems. And I also suggest you break the rules and you build yourself a PC. Let me adjust my microphone because I'm popping a lot of peas here. You build yourself a PC. Uh, yeah, I know, right? The world stops. <laughs> PCs are reliable. PCs can be upgraded. I have edited everything that I have done in the past seven years on a Puget Systems PC. And I did the hunt early on and I needed to find a PC equivalent to the old systems that I used to use. Um, and Puget Systems stepped up. They have amazing customer support. You actually talk to real people when you deal with Puget Systems. And if you go to PugetSystems.com, you can build a computer based upon the software that you're going to use. And believe it or not, not all hardware works for all software the same way. Um, and uh, head on over there, check them out, put together a PC that will change your life. It'll change the way you work creatively. Can you imagine a tool that works for you? I love that about PCs. I love that about Puget Systems. And look, to get personal with these guys, Eric, Matt, all those dudes over there, they are completely enthralled with what their customers do. They are supporters of the art. They're supporters of the craft of filmmaking. Um, so I cannot say enough great things about them. So if you want to be in bed with a company that takes things seriously and that loves the work you do, head on over to PugetSystems.com. All right. Also supporting the show. Wow. I almost had that out. Let's try that again. Also supporting the show. Our buddies over at Quasar Science. Uh, Quasar creates some of the best LED units on the market. So they create LED bicolor LED tubes. They have all sorts of different beautiful LED lighting. Uh, so if you head on over to Quasar Science, check them out if you're looking for, to improve your kit. I have a lot of folks asking, Mike, what do you light with? Well, I got a bunch of shit in my kit. I talk about it on every show. It's the same system here. I got a bunch of shit in my kit. I've got some tungsten unit sources. Uh, I've got a bunch of bicolor LED tubes from Quasar. I've got some of their battery powered ones. Uh, the thing I love about LEDs is that it's such a low power footprint, right? And they're lightweight and that they don't get hot in your hands. So they're very versatile little units. They create a very specific type of light, uh, a light that you're seeing on everything these days. If you're watching anything on Netflix, if you're watching anything on any streaming service, it, it's like, okay, what was that shot on? Oh, that's an Alexa, and they're using Kino. Oh, not Kinos, but they're using LED tubes. Right. Makes sense. So if you want to recreate a lot of this stuff, go to the best. Go to the top of the line. Find the units that aren't going to fall apart on you when you're trying to mount them on set. Get the units that have true color, like well-balanced color sources. So that way you're not having to do ridiculous color grading in post. Um, I actually just had beers the other night with Tim from Quasar. Uh, and those guys are doing some exciting stuff. Tim's actually doing some pretty interesting stuff right now as a cinematographer working for Quasar. So head on over to Quasar Science and check out everything that's going on over there, man. Uh, also supporting the show, uh, good friends over at Custom Comfort Mattress. Uh, you've heard me talk about it on the show before, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you're a newcomer to the show. When's the last time you thought about the mattress that you're sleeping on? When's the last time you assessed whether or not this thing 
that you're flopping your body on for about half your life is actually doing what it's supposed to do. Do you wake up in pain? Do you wake up stiff? Do you wake up feeling weird? It's probably because your mattress sucks. And what is your standpoint on buying a mattress? Has it always been, I need to just go get a fucking good deal? And then you walk into the, the, to the back of some old closed fucking gas station and in there they've set up a bunch of mattresses and it's like going out of business sale. It's like, where the fuck did these things come from? That's how most people's mattress buying experiences are. Even when you, when you used to go into Sears, you get in the basement of Sears and there are a bunch of like dirty mattresses set up and you have to climb on them. It's like, is this the deal I want? Or maybe you're part of the whole new movement, which is everything is being sold online. And so then you're seeing the ad campaigns for like these Silicon Valley companies that are like, hey, it's a purple fucking thing. And you get on this thing, you can set it up and you can do it. I went and tested those things out. It's essentially a giant air mattress with a cover on it. I don't want to spend that kind of money on an air mattress. What number are you? It's an air mattress. That's what's going on. I want something that's sturdy. I want something that's going to last me 10 years. I want something that I could flip. Double-sided mattresses. Remember those? So I found Custom Comfort. And we found it by walking into their showroom. And we went in there and they changed the way they do things. Hey, we're not going to have you walk out of here with a mattress. We're going to have you walk out of here understanding what kind of mattress you need. That's amazing. What do I want? Do I want springs? Do I want latex? Is it hard? Is it soft? The thing I really liked about Custom Comfort is they went through the process of showing me that these people build mattresses the way they used to be built, by hand. So everything's built by hand. So they can go through and tweak your mattresses. You can stuff it the way you want. You can change it out. And what I really liked about it is that when we finally made the decision, because we went in and out of that showroom like two or three times to try to figure it all out, because I had to get a lot of preconceived notions about my sleeping habits out of my head. And then I picked a mattress and then they gave me a hundred and change days to lay on it. And if I didn't like it, they'd come pick it up and adjust it, open it back up and restuff it and do all this shit. It's amazing. It changed the way I buy mattresses. It changed the way I think about sleeping. And it was all part of that process of me kicking my insomnia habits. And there's a whole episode. I did a whole episode. Go back, go to lovewiththeprocess.com and check it out. I think it's in our lifestyle episodes. Go check it out. We did an entire episode on my kicking insomnia. And Custom Comfort had a big portion to deal with that. So head on over to customcomfort.com and buy yourself. Don't treat yourself. Respect yourself by buying a mattress that you can sleep on for half your life. All right. That's it. Let's get back to the episode. I've taken for granted at times the quality of, of collaborators that I've managed to sort of pull together. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography on the Mortuary Collection was was two guys, uh, Ellie Smolkin, who's <clears throat> a way out of my league uh cinematographer who's done a ton of tv and a ton of movies and um he did that movie final girls did you see that movie final girls no i haven't seen that no oh man put that on your list yeah dude that's that's a that's a you and the wife movie for sure okay final girls on the list yeah um but he 
he did the babysitter murders for the Kickstarter. Um, so he was there from the start and then he did half of the feature. And then he what he was like, and this is what happens when you make a movie for two years. He's like, I booked a huge Showtime show yeah. that I'm shooting. Um, and so we ended up finding another cinematographer who was a, a newer guy who hadn't done much um, to come in and do the second half of it. Uh, and then now this the second guy, Caleb Heyman, is um, also a fantastic cinematographer. And uh, and now he's the main cinematographer in Stranger Things. So <laughs> it was uh, – I, I definitely like – have worked with incredible people and and I have appreciated them, but I, at times I'm like, wow, I, it could have gone very different. I could have, you know, in the desperation of needing someone at the last minute, hired someone that was the wrong fit and the movie would be a whole different thing. So, um, you know, it's it, it can't be understated how important these sort of key collaborators are. As everyone knows, I know, but I feel, I feel like I got to say it when people talk about how great the movie looks that it wouldn't look that way without those two guys. Believe me, I know. I get, I get a lot of credit for the work of other people as well. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always just going like, I didn't physically do that. I just told them what to do. And then they did that. Um, but yeah, no, completely. And you've worked with some really great, like you worked with the Mondo Boys for the, for the score for that, right? I did, yeah. I mean, the Mondo Boys are have been really close friends of mine for twelve to thirteen years. They've been just they're, good they're buddies. Crushing of mine. I, they're I crushing it. They're crushing shows. They're yeah. awesome. They're yeah. awesome. Are you familiar with them beyond the Mortuary Collection? Yeah, because they did the score for, or they did the work for Fat Man, which was the, Fat the Man. yeah the Nelms Brothers. I, I I had them on the show. I actually just had tacos and beers with them like a week ago. We were fucking we closed out a restaurant a week ago. Um, but yeah, dude, like they're great. Those guys like, uh, did amazing uh, music for that. And then I was surprised to see it on the credits for your movie. I was just like, okay, all right. This guy's, yeah. play this guy's playing with some people that are doing shit. <laughs> well, dude. And the thing is, is that, um, the Mondo boys for, I think that they, they like averaged it out and they were like, they had done five times as much music on the Mortuary Collection than they had for any other film they'd ever done because- <laughs> Not only is it sort of this heightened, stylized, wall-to-wall -wall music type of thing, but it's it's five different stories, and each story has five different themes, and some some stories have multiple themes. But then also, um, when I did the Babysitter Murders as the Kickstarter, um, I actually had a different. I had another friend of mine who was composing at that time, Greg Trippy, and um, also an awesome composer. Uh, and I needed a like a song for like a, the dance sequence where she's like cooking dinner and dancing. Mm -hmm. And so I called up my friend Mike and I was like, "Hey, can you write me like a like a cool like '70s style like fun song, but like it's really about like cooking and eating people?" Um, and uh, <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, we could try to whip something up." And he did, and it was so good. And everybody would watch that short and be like. Um, I love that song. Like, where can I find that song? I got to find that song. And so um, when we went to do the feature and then Greg got a, a also a Showtime show, Showtime's just stealing all of my collaborators, by the way. <laughs> Fairly. Um, um, and so he couldn't do it. So the, the Mondo Boys came on and one of the things we were like, we're like, well, people really loved the, um, the standalone song from the Babysitter Murders. What if we do one song for each of the shorts and each song, the lyrics will be written specifically for the short and kind of have, have clues and secrets buried within it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, at the end of the day, not only did they do score, which is almost wall to wall, but every single piece of music, every single piece of diegetic music in the entire film is originally created for wow. the Mortuary Collection. Wow. So there's not one piece of licensed music in there. And so it's it's an insane amount of content. And it wasn't until we were halfway through working on it when I was like, 
holy shit, guys, I'm really sorry. I know this is a huge load. And of course, I'm a picky asshole. So I'm like making them do like several versions of these of each track. And there's like 500 tracks. Uh, and they never complained and they, and they crushed it. And I, I feel like uh, I felt like the whole time I was working with them, I was like, this might be the last time that I'm that these guys are not famous enough that they would work with me because I, I have a feeling that they're going to be just huge. They, they can do everything. They're, they're really wonderful. I suggest anyone listening who look, who's looking for uh, composers doesn't even have to be genre there. They, they can do almost anything They're They're really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, so from a director's standpoint, I always find this fascinating because uh, it took me years to sort of figure out my process. How are you, you don't have any music background, right? Have you been trained musically? Have you done any of that? Okay, so same with me. Um, so then there hit this point where you have to try to convey to a musician emotionally what you want from that sequence, from the score. What is your process for that? Dude, I, I think that is one of the hardest uh, components of the job Yeah, is, is trying to speak music with professionals, not sound like a total idiot <laughs> and convey... Um, and I, the, the dream is always that I want to, uh, to not put any temp music in and let it be, um, yeah, I hate it. Just pure, like how it inspires, mm-hmm. how it inspires them. But composers, for the most part, from my experience, they don't really like that too much because it's too open of a playing field. And also, whether you know it or not, there's something in your head that you imagine it to be, and it's almost inevitably not going to be that if you don't start pointing them in a direction. So it's that weird push and pull, and then there's like temp love where you fall in love with the tracks that you put in there. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I honestly find that to be one of the most frustrating. Uh, luckily, I get to work with uh, Mike and Mike, who are um, just super chill and super easy to work with, and it doesn't become like contentious. But uh, I've always found that to be so hard to like convey what you want it to be. And I've even like played notes on a piano before, which is the most pathetic thing you've ever seen to try to like convey this like idea of a theme that's in my head. And ultimately I think you have to find somebody that just really gets you. Yeah. In to some degree right off the top. So you can start from a foundation. Cause if you're just like shooting arrows in the dark, it's, it can be a really frustrating process. Yeah. I agree with you, man. And my dream scenario would be to be able to hook up with a uh, a composer ahead of time and then just have them like like bringing out stuff based upon what they're reading in the script so that way I can fall in love with that stuff because I hate I hate falling in love with temp music I really do and there's something I also think that there's a big part there's a big thing that happened I think in the 2000s where all of a sudden you needed to put like pop songs. You had to reimagine pop songs for fucking trailers. It's, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're watching a trailer yes. and it's got some like funky dark version of Madonna track running in it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's still happening, by the way. That's yeah. still that's still alive and well. Uh, it drives me crazy. And so, you know, I hearken back to like Indiana Jones and Jaws and that kind of stuff. And so for me, I, I'm always trying to push my composers to write a theme that is worth the fucking trailer. That is something that will go in for trailer music. And and you want it to be, you want it to be inspired and you want it to sound great. Uh, and whenever I'm using temp music, I, I always feel like, like different people like things for different reasons, right? So you may like listen to a song and be like, man, the fucking uh, pacing of this track is really great. Or like the dark, the dark tone, the synth shit is really nice. But 
everybody's got a different reason for it. So I, there's a danger behind putting temp tracks down, especially if you're showing a cut to producers or you're showing a cut to audiences because, you know, they'll feel a very specific way about a, a track. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not, okay, all right. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You can, I've found, I've had luck before, especially with the Bondo Boys, in not putting a, laying down a specific track, but, but giving them a specific direction. Like, let's go... Uh, all Bernard Herman, all classic Bernard Herman, um, <laughs> all strings for this segment, and like at least giving them a place to start. Yeah, um, and that we've had some probably the best luck doing it that way um, for a lot of the Mortuary, especially because the Mortuary Collection had a little of everything. It had like you know here's the slasher, like the slasher movie or Babysitter Murders had two soundtracks. It had the the soundtrack in the movie inside the movie, and then it had the the world soundtrack and this one sequence where the two of them kind of intertwine mm -hmm. as you sort of cut from one world to the next. And so we had these kind of like guideposts to sort of point us in the right direction. Um, and then um, when you have somebody who's, who are just, you know, just really creatives, like, like ultimate creatives, you know, it's sometimes best to stand back and, and let them go. And not only like give them the freedom to do that, but then also like strip away all your preconceived notions and, and try to really, open your mind up to it because we, I think almost all directors or at least, you know, very involved directors, we, ha we, there is something already in our head, even if we can't vocalize it. And, and again, like I said, that, that as soon as we hear something that's different, it feels wrong, but it's not necessarily wrong. It's just different. And when you see these amazing movies like hereditary and you see the way that soundtrack feels up against that image, it might not necessarily be what Ari Aster had in mind, but it, it, it evokes something completely unique and special. And that's kind of what you want to get out of your movies you don't want to push everything back into a place where it's like oh it's like poltergeist again i mean that's <laughs> awesome i'm not going to complain about that but uh but if you can find something that's taking it someplace else i think the best way to do it is with um, creative partners that sort of and giving them the freedom to to do it yeah which is hard yeah and you're right it's it's about trying to break down because it's this dangerous balance because you have to have a preconceived notion when you read a script right at least i do i mm -hmm. read a script initially mm -hmm. and i go Cool. This is what this is what's pulling me in. I like this. I like this. I could visualize what this sequence looks like. I'm really excited about making this fucking sequence. And pr prior to my to my new methods, my, prior to that, that would be what I would build everything around. I would start there. I'd go like, here's this sequence that I know I'm going to do. I'm going to do a fucking steady cam shot to the speed. Bup, 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 bup. And I would start to build out backwards from that stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I'm trying to teach myself a to make note of those things that I really find interesting. But then B, through a series of exercises, like try to dump all that out of me, like sort of really sort of let it all run loose and then do a little bit of research and dig into the characters and dig into the motivation of the characters and start to build backstory behind the characters. And then it's been this new exciting journey where I'm like, oh, fuck, if this person did this, then that is, oh, fuck. And then you start falling down <laughs> into a hole somewhere and you're like, yeah. wow, wow, how the fuck did I get here? You know, and you had no idea. Yeah. That that's where you that where the movie wanted to go, and I, I there's something so much more exil at least now in my 40s. There's something so much more exhilarating than back when I was a kid studying Hitchcock and going here are the storyboards, and then going on set going here's the shot based upon the storyboards. They hit a point of boredom for me where sure it, it just didn't breathe enough, you know. Sure, and I think like maybe that's how you have to find your way to it, right? You you. It's the the old adage that you start you start with imitation, yeah, uh, and then you you fine tune it until you have that lockdown, and then ideally you start to 
you know, expand beyond that. And then, then and I think we're both probably in that phase of our careers now where it's like, well, we know how to do the thing. We know how to do the thing the way we used to like it. Now, how do we like do it differently? How do we surprise people? And how do we take it into places that at least is satisfying to us creatively? Who knows with an audience? Yeah. And I also feel like that by the time we hit that point, I'm going to be screaming, can you guys put down the wheelchair ramp so I can get on the set? Because <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I know, I'm to <laughs> You I know, know, man. It's scary. It's just like, fuck off. <laughs> um, but uh, so let me see. What else did I want to talk to you about before we get like deep, deep into getting super nerdy? Oh, so how was working with Ghost House? How'd you meet those guys? Did they Obviously, they saw the mortuary stuff, right? Yeah, they saw. I'm trying to think how that happened. So basically, when I sent um, an executive over there named Rommel, um a rough cut of the mortuary collection when I was working on it because I was like, I, we were like kind of getting to the end and we were basically out of money and we had visual effects. And I was like, ah, there's got to be a way to team up with, like, I love what we have so far. There's got to be a way we can find a, like an awesome company and, uh, and, and sort of team up with them and get the little bit of money we need to get over the finish line and have like a cool production company and sort of distribute the film that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out it's not done that way. It's just no, nobody's <laughs> interested in picking up a movie that's almost done, except maybe like sharks that are out there looking to like take advantage of filmmakers. Sure. Um, but I did send them the rough cut and then uh, he sent it to Sam, which I did not ask him to do. Uh, <laughs> and I was kind of embarrassed because it was still an early cut, but he sent it to him anyway. And um and Sam really loved it. And so I ended up getting to do an episode of 50 States of Fright because Sam saw that episode and sort of pushed me, put me up on the sort of, uh, not the chopping block, but but gave me the opportunity to come in and pitch. And um, and so, yeah, so then I got to go to Vancouver for a month and, and sh- basically write and direct uh, a short film for Sam Raimi, which is a dream that only Quibi could have made possible. And, uh, and now it is no more. So it was, a, it was fleeting and beautiful. Yeah, no, because it seems being someone that likes to do short form content, it seems like Quibi is like the perfect venue for you or was the perfect venue for you. It I, it was. And I think that um, the show that we were doing, 50 States, um, I think it's coming to Roku. So it'll be available soon. Um it was awesome. Like every, like Sam was like very adamant about giving each filmmaker pretty much complete creative control um, for like how they wanted their script to play out and how they wanted to execute it. All you had to do was sort of, you know, get onto this, you know, TV train and, and, and execute it with a certain amount of hours that were given to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise it was, you could cast, you could sort of work with the special effects, you could work with costumes, you could do whatever you wanted. Um, and because of that, I think that it made, uh, uh, an anthology series unlike anything that's been out there before. There's not, it, it's like watching these really great, well-funded short films um, mm. by up-and-coming filmmakers. And I think there were like some kinks um, in the first season as they were kind of working it out, but I was really excited about season two because I think season two is going to be really, really special. Um, and I'd written two episodes for season two, so I was bummed when uh, when Quibi went away. But I think if Quibi had focused more on this kind of content that's like specifically kind of catered towards, you know, the, the, the short form audience, I think, um, I don't know. What, what do I know? I, I don't think I could have saved Quibi, but uh, <laughs> it would have been something. <laughs> well, I think Quibi, Quibi was doomed to begin with. I think the pandemic fucking killed Quibi because no one was, too. no one was getting on the bus going like, well, let me watch this thing on my phone for five minutes. It was like, Hey, 
like our our podcast audience went through the fucking roof. People were like, I want to sit around two hours listening to this guy say fuck every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? That's awesome. Did that really happen? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. Our, our, our listenership went up during the podcast, which was crazy. Um, and it really enabled me. I mean, being in the pandemic and everybody else being in the pandemic really enabled me to focus on the show. Uh, and get really great guests and everybody was saying yes and everybody wanted to be on the show so um yeah so i, I think get, yeah we we took all we, we took all your viewers <laughs> but it's i mean it's, i knew it in love with the process <laughs> and showtime are the two biggest <laughs> um but uh you know the, the theory behind quibi I, I dig and it's like it said it sounds like it was a perfect fit for you and um, I have met with that exec and I have hung out over at Ghost House and they're really fucking cool. Like I never got to meet Sam Raimi. I don't think he ever saw any of my work, but um, he, like he's he's one of those directors as we talk about, you know, coming from like grassroots and like grabbing a fucking camera, and grabbing branches and smacking your actor in the face. He He comes from that world. And it's so funny to me that the business now looks back on those movies and says let's do that but let's not do that you know what i mean and yeah. it's like let's yes. bring in like fucking 20 trailers and go through this whole process and it's like yeah but the reason why i like those movies is because it has that energy it because it has that small crew vibe you know like i, I agree i agree and i think um now i don't know if i mean I don't know how you make money anymore doing those kind of movies. I think it used to be you could you could pull together a little bit of money and go out into the woods in North Carolina and yeah, slap your actor around with a two by four <laughs> for a couple months and then sell it and have a career. Now I just think you um, you could you can get your movie out there. You can get it on a streaming platform. You can um, get some Twitter followers and you can do some podcasts. But I don't know if it's sustainable for people to to work in that in that realm anymore so i'm not sure the the window from which you have a successful career seems to be getting smaller and smaller and it was already a pretty tiny window to begin with so it's going to be really interesting to see how things pan out post-pandemic with the streaming wars and the yeah yeah every filmmaker coming up kids making feature films when they're like 19 years old and it's a it's a whole I, new thing i, I feel now, like now i'm on now i'm screaming in my front yard just <laughs> Yeah, two old guys on a porch. I feel like I, <laughs> I feel like I got to order a package from Amazon, and when the guy shows up to my doorway, I go, "Here's my short film. You show it to your bosses. Maybe I can get a career." Post <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, <clears throat> but, well, dude. All right, so let's let's not be those two old guys because I'm always that old fucking dude that's screaming about this shit. <laughs> like, I, I have a guest on the show that really does respect the craft, and um, I think that there was a period of time where horror movies were just sort of schlock and always felt like at least back in the 80s 70s and 80s it was like sort of like the subgenre, sort of schlock genre that had like a rabid audience but not a lot of fucking respect from it mm -hmm. and uh, i think a lot of people don't realize how much craft goes into making a great horror film to begin with and then now it, it seems like the most craft loaded stuff that comes out in the theaters these days is horror and does come from mm -hmm. our fucking genre um, why do you think that is? Why do you think horror is such a craft-centric genre? Um, I think it's the most craft-centric, basically. I, I always have. I think it was that was the reason that I was drawn to it initially. Um, but I think that... It, 
I think it's it doesn't rely on the very delicate balance that some other genres rely on. Like like a drama, uh, if you're watching a drama and you're, and you're really locking into characters in a moment, you can't suddenly just like mount the camera on like a roller skate and like you know push it across the table towards your lead actor. Like you can't really play in the same way that you can with horror, which is like the more you play, the, the playfulness is expected, and you can almost go. Um, as crazy as you want and, and your audience will, will sort of love you for it. So I think that it's just, it's the freedom, uh, or at least what I'm drawn to is the freedom to be able to play with visuals, with audio, with color palettes, with time periods, with editing, with all of the different sort of tools you have at your disposal and being able to, um, to just fuck with those, with those things and, and try to create something interesting. And, and you, um, you fail, often um but you know if you if you're up at bad enough times uh some things get through and that's where i think your voice starts to sort of resonate with an audience like i remember last night i had um dinner with a director friend and he was like well, what's the the biggest thing that you learned on the mortuary collection and I, i'm like man i've got that question all the time but i never have a good answer for it um and uh and basically i was like i guess the one of the biggest takeaways is find those those like moments that are really important to you, those style moments, and just fight for them mm-hmm. tooth and nail. Because um, when you're making a genre piece, um, it kind of lives and dies on that stuff. And those are the first things that go when you're running out of time and money. And if you yeah. allow your AD to say, oh, we don't have time for the specialty shot, um, if that, you know, that happens enough times, your movie is, it, it doesn't matter. Your movie is just kind of like uh, Vanilla. At that it's point. not going to resonate with anybody. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's weird to say that after we just talked about how important character and performance and story are <laughs> over visuals, <laughs> but there is still some core components that a, that a horror, a horror film needs uh, to work that builds atmosphere and, and style and, and inserts are not throwaway inserts are, you know, the beating heart of horror. And, and those kind of things are, are the first thing that producers try to get you to, to shed away. And I saw a lot of that working in TV when we were doing genre TV and, and people had all these fun components that they wanted to do that they couldn't do because they ran out of time and they ended up with a bunch of over the shoulders. And oh, that yeah. just it isn't good genre. And that's and why, and why genre I think sometimes struggles on television as well, especially when you don't have a healthy budget. I, I really didn't answer that question at all. I just kind of like veered off into something else. <laughs> Sorry about that. But no, I dude, I, I get it. And I agree with you. And I think that, you know, for me, film, films are a visual medium. Like, you have to have a great script, 100%. You have to have a, a good narrative to pull your audience to. But show, don't tell. It's a visual fucking medium. And so if we're using this, these magic tricks, like the 100 plus years of magic tricks of like taking a close-up and cutting it to a wide shot and suddenly transporting mm-hmm. you into one room to the other or like understanding... The connotation that a 50 millimeter lens has as opposed to uh like a like a 20 millimeter macro like you understand this sort of uh, invisible visual language that that triggers emotions the same way a chef knows when to put salt and sweet on a plate and so Mm -hmm. i think that it just seems these days, maybe it's because we're trying to fuel the beasts because of the, all these beasts are like, we need fucking content. We need an ass load of content. Audiences need to binge this shit. So let's go, let's go, let's go on the schedule. That that side of it has sort of fallen to the wayside where I firmly believe in A, look, my whole new belief is like finding like really 
um, amazing and natural performances. I, I fucking love that idea. But still, I'm going to take that shit and, uh, and bring it into the current machine that is visual storytelling language and try to figure out how to blend those two things to make what we love so much, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the Spielbergian stretch pull on the fucking cop on the beach when there's like a shark that shows up. You know, mm-hmm. like that is such a out of control fucking visual piece, but it's, it's, it's important. And his performance, you could have just played it on his face and his performance would have sold it. But Spielberg was like, no, fuck you. And he was pushed it right in. And he did that to the point where I'm on the, on the same beaches as a kid going, I ain't going in the fucking water. It's because <laughs> of that. It's because of that shit. So it's this blending, I think, of the two of those things that really makes legends like you start talking about ridley scott you start talking about you know even sam raymond fincher. and fincher i mean mm-hmm. you start talking about these directors and they understand that they understand that it is first and foremost a visual medium like shut off the fucking sound and watch this fucking thing and it should be guiding you through some sort of emotional journey and then if you start to listen to the dialogue it's like oh okay great this is ultimately what it's about but i didn't necessarily need it and I, I really learned that shit when I did 12 cam. I did a movie in a different language. I think that was mm-hmm. the moment for me where I was like, dude, visuals, 100%. I, got, I convinced, on a weekly basis, I convinced uh, average Americans that don't like to read subtitles to watch a little short film <laughs> about Russians, and they fucking dig it because of that. You know what I mean? So, I don't know, whatever. I think it's important, is what I was saying. It is. I, I feel like you just, you in an in a interesting way that I never considered before you just kind of summed up what makes Spielberg Spielberg that he 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 put he he's taking these wide visual swings and he's fitting them within a a, a contextual story box that people can really everyone can sort of get on board with Mm -hmm. um that that's especially his old stuff um that's where he that's where he sings and and I would say Peter Jackson is is a very close Mm -hmm. uh comp to Spielberg in the the amount of visual flair that he crams in he manages to work within a, uh, a more traditional story that people can sort of latch onto and and uh, character arcs and emotional beats that sort of resonate. Yeah, I agree with you. And honestly, I, I also want to get rid of that term visual flair. I, I feel like a lot of people, when they talk about visual storytellers, they're always like, yeah, but then he does his shit. And then he does his magic stuff. It's like, no, 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 fuck you. That should be the playing field. That should be where we're playing is in that magical stuff because this is such a visual medium. To be stuck in this world of fucking over-the-shoulder coverage wide over and over and then you're supposed to run a whole fucking scene through this. It's like, God damn it, is every show fucking like Law and Order? You know what I mean? After you watch half these shows, I just want that dum-dum. You know what I mean? Because you're like, that, that was just Law and Order fucking coverage for a superhero fucking show. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. That's happening. That, I'm starting to see that in in features now too, especially features that are like streaming features. Yeah, like a, like a, a this formatting thing that's like becoming like this universal formatting. Um, that's like the most basic type of coverage. It's it's really a, a bummer. You you have to like you're saying you have to dig to find those gems sometimes, or or Shutter's a good place to start. Yeah, no, for sure. It's also interesting when you start to break apart like who you know who's directing and 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 especially when you start getting into like these larger tentpole movies 
And the cherry picking that these large companies do where it's like, okay, here's this little indie director that has done like this award-winning little emotional indie short. We'll just cherry pick this person, put them in on this action film, and then just have the same second unit assistant director or second unit director just do all the action stuff. And that was something that I didn't realize until I talked to Wade Eastwood, who is like Tom Cruise stunt coordinator, but he also does all the second unit stuff. And he's like, dude... You just see these directors come in and they come in and they, t- they deal with the talent, they talk to the talent, and then they take off. And then we come through, the same crews come through and do all of the action, like all of like the shit that you and I like, where it's like, yeah. fuck, they're not, wow. even, they're not even directing that stuff. He's like, no, they're, they're coming in and they're working with the talent and they're creating like those cute little moments that happen on screen. And then they go and then, you know, you know, Black Panther jumping from vehicle to vehicle and doing all that kind of stuff. That's us. That's the whole second unit team that does all that stuff. Wow. That's, um, yeah, that, that would be hard for me, I think. Completely. I, think I would have a hard time. <laughs> uh, it, like, th- there's like one second there where I go, oh, it does sound nice just to work with actors and then go home and sl- get a good night's sleep. But then to imagine that like 50% of your movie is being crafted by um, other people who aren't even anywhere near as invested in the sort of components as you are is scary. I think I heard an interview with um, David Sandberg who was saying that when he did Shazam, Mm -hmm. he bumped into some of that stuff where they had like a a second unit team that was shooting a lot of the action stuff. And he was so, he he so wanted to be involved that he would basically shoot all day. And then at night when he was supposed to be sleeping, he would go over to the second unit and like work with the second unit team as they were shooting the action stuff. So he went like weeks without sleeping like an hour or two a night just yeah. because he wanted to be involved. Um, yeah. yeah, that's um, yeah, that's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nightmare is what that is. Yeah. Where you're like, man, this is where all the good shit is. This is where the good stuff is. Like, I want to be the guy that's like hanging out with the fucking helicopter pilot as he does that shit. That's the whole reason. That's the reason for like yeah. years and years of, of like not getting paid and like family looking at you like, what is your job again? You know, it's to be there. Oh, I, yeah. I, I guess I could see, I could see the... Um, how that would work though as a business, like if you're if you're Marvel and you're churning out these movies and there has to be a consistency to them and you're you're hiring directors that sometimes have done a couple of Sundance movies and you know they're great with actors, you know they're sure. great with story. Um, that's a way to sort of cover all your bases. Like let's get these people in. You know that the, the performances are gonna be off the charts, we're gonna get those great moments, and then let's have our team of go to action uh, guys and gals come in and like make sure all of that stuff works for that audience. And then it's a it's like an assembly line process. Um, so I get it, but I, I like you. I, I want to be both. I want to be both of those guys. I want to do the. I want to work with the actors, and I want to work with the, uh, with the the spring loaded uh, stunt robots. <laughs> well, and and you know, there's a glimmer of hope. You know, there has been a glimmer of hope, at least in that genre. Like I feel like uh, James Gunn was a glimmer of hope. He's a guy that really respects the visual uh, medium. He's a great screenplay writer. But you feel yeah. like that movie is just covered in James Gunn. And then yeah. uh, I'm excited that uh, Sam Raimi's doing fucking uh, uh, Doctor Strange too. I'm excited about that. Me too. And I hope Me too. he's. I hope he's like, fuck the camera, put it on a fucking two by four and run it at them. I hope he's doing that <laughs> shit. Like that's what I want from it. You know. Um, <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> if anybody can do that, if anybody can put the camera on a two by four, it's going to be Sam Raimi. Yeah, that's what you want. That's that's what you're buying. That's the reason to sit in the audience is for that. Um, yeah, man. Uh, how are you doing on time? You okay? Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I'm doing good. Okay, because I can keep ranting for a little bit, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface. I'm having a lot of fun. 
uh, talk. Yeah, about no, this. I would say I probably have uh, about thirty more minutes. Yeah, we could do it. I would say. 25 minutes somewhere around 230 only thing is i feel like my earbuds are going to die at some point in time so i may have to go to the this mic so we'll test and see if we get weird feedback all right sounds good (laughs) um so um yeah so you said you want to ask me some stuff about the shorts that i did what did you get what did you want to get into oh man um well, first off yeah i i couldn't get over just the the look of of uh of uh uh, what is it uh m m which one the 12 cam 12 cam at 12 km yeah yeah um oh man i i have questions in every single aspect of that one um the things that stood out to me the most uh was the cinematography which is mm-hmm. fantastic and uh i don't know what your budget was for that but talking about um the use of of cinematography to make something look super expensive and and very spielbergian um Mm-hmm. I think you sort of knocked it out of the you, you didn't sort of you definitely did knock it out of the park. There's like there's very few if any shots in the whole movie that if you'd grabbed a still of uh it wouldn't be an awesome like still frame to use in a pitch deck to pitch a different movie that's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why I'm yanking from that film all the time in our pitch deck. <laughs> um I appreciate that. Like uh that was the first collaboration with me and and my now wife. Uh, cinematographer David Cruda, like the two of us are married uh, like, <laughs> uh, creatively. Um, and we worked together on that. And he, he had big shoes to fill coming into this because, like I said, I had done all of my own cinematography prior to this. And I had a very specific, my, and I've said this on the show, my, um, my rules for that movie were let's learn the language of. John Carpenter, let's learn the language of Spielberg. Let's learn the language of these guys, but let's not recreate shots for them. Let's just learn that language and write a whole mm-hmm. new book using that language. Um, and uh, he was right there with me. That whole movie was completely storyboarded out. And everything was put together. But what I liked about Cruda is that he would take my boards, which at the time were very much under the influence of the fact that I had trouble drawing beyond a second dimension. So a lot of my boards were very flat and two-dimensional. And he came mm-hmm. in and he was like, oh, no, 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 no. What if we do this and what if we put it on a tri- What if we put it on a dolly and we do a slight move and we do it? And uh, that marriage has worked really well um, since. And um, that, uh, because of his hard work and that, that entire team, that entire uh, uh, production design team, um, that movie has basically started the career, started my career, and then literally uh, got us into the offices of Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott watched that movie. He loved it. And then they're developing it. So Scott Free's developing that as a feature because of that. Incredible. And and not surprised. That doesn't surprise me in the least. I mean, I, I think I heard you on one of your, another one of your podcasts talk about how um, you hadn't released it yet. And I, I, I don't know if you'd mentioned that you were doing as a feature but I was like, man, this has got to come out some way. Like, the, I immediately was like, I want to see. Of course, going right to anthology, I'm like, I want to see like the the, the Mike's Wild Tales, where it's like three <laughs> stories that are like thematically linked um, within this world, because it's got such a. It, it just it just really pops. It's something that an audience would really love. And I have like, um, okay, th- th- I, this is this is going to be getting a little deep into it, but sure, go, let's um, do it. Okay, your working relationship with a cinematographer. This is something that I just pinged on recently Mm -hmm. and i am worried that i've been doing it wrong my whole career okay working with a cinematographer which is this um 
I came up, I, I was a cinematographer for a while. I was a, a photographer for ABC News for a long time. Oh, cool. Um, I'm really familiar with having a camera on my shoulder. Um, and I always, ever since I was in film school, thought that the relationship was um, that the director creates all the shots. You work with the cinematographer, you know, you sit down and you, with the storyboards and you work with them and you collaborate on the shot design. But for the most part, the shot design is completely created by the director um, with the assistance of the cinematographer. And then the cinematographer, I pretty much let cinematographers uh, give them free reign to light it as we sort of discuss and, you know, we come up with looks and styles and I kind of let them go. I don't, I don't really tinker with the lighting whatsoever unless I, something doesn't feel right to me for some specific reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have seen other directors who are uh, just actors, directors, and they're like, they let the cinematographer do kind of everything. The cinematographer will even say like, Oh, let's do a dolly shot from the corner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's get this, this in the close up from here. Let's get a shot through the window. So I understand that, but I always thought that the, the general practice was the, the (laughs) director does the shot design and the cinematographer does the lighting. But then somebody recently told me that no, the, the cinematographer more often than not will do a lot of the shot design will dictate a lot of the shot design. The director focuses on actors and it, I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. And then I like thought more about it. And then we had this deep conversation. I was like, wait, have I been doing it? Have I been pissing off my cinematographers my whole life? Because I didn't know that that's how it goes. So I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to start asking all my director friends yes. how they do it. And my cinematographer friends, because I feel like if I've been doing it wrong, my cinematographers haven't been telling me. They've just been secretly hating me when I'm not looking at them. Um, okay. So I don't think you're wrong. And I think that... I think that uh, it isn't just about, for me at least, I think when I'm doing a movie, there is so much involved with how the audience receives that information, right? So from mm-hmm. shot design, from lighting, from sound, all that stuff, all of that is is tweakable elements to get them to feel the closest that I felt when I mm-hmm. first read the script or when I was there. So each one of those tools is literally just an emotional fucking wrench and you're just trying to crank those things up. So for yeah, me, for me, I think that, and this is why uh, me and Crude get along so well, my cinematographer, I think that he likes it when I do all my homework. So I'll go through and I'll do my homework all the way down to how much coverage I need for a scene, what angle, how, the height of the angle, the height of the lens, the lens choice, all these different things. I will do that homework and then him and I will start to talk about it way before we get on set. And so then we start to have that creative conversation that happens prior to that. And, and it, some of it may be creative arguments. Some of it may be, uh, you know, me put my foot down for now. But a lot mm-hmm. of that I think is important because then he knows the playground that he can then play in. So, for instance, last night, we were just texting back and forth on this other project that we're going to do, because the other film we're going to do first. Um, and I was sending him stuff that I had seen out of that movie, and I go, fucking Mel Gibson's edge light defined his career. And I'm like, I love, <laughs> I love, this is what I send him as a text. I'm like, I love this fucking edge light, and I love this thing, and I start sending him this stuff, and he goes, yeah, and he starts to send me stuff. He's like, what do you think of this? And then we start to argue, and I'm like, I don't like the desaturation in that. I don't like that, what that is. And he's like, well, you know, the lighting that you like is very much in the 90s, aren't we, a current film? And I'm like, okay. And so we start to go back and forth and find this. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I, I, I figure that 
what happens and what happened on 12km him and i talked a lot watched a lot of movies talked a lot about a lot of shit and then we got onto a set like i said being directed in a language that I don't speak. And so my brain is very much involved with that. And the first shot is being set up. And I, I have never seen this guy in real life. Him and I have only talked online. So we met for the first time the day before we were on set. And so then I had this moment where I go, I should probably go look at the monitor. <laughs> like, I was like, I should go see what this guy's first setup is. And I just walk over and I look at, I look at the monitor and I'm like, cool, can we see a blocking? And so then they run through the blocking and I go, Okay, great. And that was it. That was it. Like all that language sort of worked out and he was able to bring in what he needed uh, and be able to play in this playground of stuff. So when you look at his work in that movie and you look at the storyboards, you'll see that my storyboards are generally what the shot was, but then it's been crudified. So like it Mm. it ultimately has his shit that's in there. And I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's right. You know? Okay, that sounds right. Yeah, that I mean that that's that would be that's essentially the, the same thing that I had with my collaborators. But I I don't know why I was having this conversation with uh, another filmmaker, and, and he was saying, uh, "No, you're 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 doing too much. You're you're stepping on their toes." And I was like, "I don't think that's the case. I don't. I mean, I'm. It's like you said, like the you you never have your cinematographer." For the amount of time you would lo- like prior, sure. like you always fantasize, like oh, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna storyboard the whole movie, we're gonna watch movies together, we're gonna have beers, we're gonna talk about it, <laughs> we're gonna go home, we're gonna dream about it, we're gonna come back with new ideas, and then it's always like a okay, we got three hours to storyboard half the movie, and uh, maybe watch a movie if you have time. Like yeah. that's how always been the experience, um, because cinematographers work. I mean, they work more than us. Yeah. So, um, so I've always just been curious about that, and then and then. With storyboarding, are you a, a storyboard guy um, across yeah. the board? Well, yeah. I mean, I storyboarded out everything. I don't know how I'm going to do this new one, but I feel like there's a big portion of it is that that is going to be storyboarded. I feel like 100% that if I do all my homework, what I like to do is hang up all my storyboards on set so everybody from the crafty to the fucking actors know exactly what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, I always say to my team, I'm like, here's the shit. His, as long as you guys get this stuff done in a day, I got a fucking movie here. We'll have some time to play around. But if we are out too late drinking the night before and you guys are all hung over today, just fucking follow the fucking rules on the board here. Yeah, and, <laughs> that's good. And we'll at least get a movie started, you know. Um, but yeah. That's cool. I, I found that um, I, I also storyboard um, extensively. Um, but I think I realized that I don't, I don't storyboard like I think the 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 negative idea of storyboarding is you you write yourself into a box before yeah. you're there on set and you can like uh, find it in the moment and look look at this location and be like oh if we put the camera up in the chimney it'll like like I think the 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 fear is that you miss out on that thing but I've found that for me this is like storyboarding prior to like having locations like like really or early storyboarding mm-hmm. um, I found that the 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 biggest asset for me is because I pretty much write everything I've done. So I've lived with it on the script phase for six months, a year. And mm-hmm. then I've done all the pre-production. And it's just been in my head for so long. Um, I have no context. I can't really see the forest through the trees. Mm-hmm. But if I can get a talented storyboard artist to render that story in frames, I can suddenly watch it as an audience member again. Mm-hmm. And that process is insanely valuable that that's the most valuable thing so what i'll do is i'll i'll storyboard 
most of the movie myself, which is like a very crude version of, of storyboards. And then I'll pass them on to a storyboard artist and work with them and storyboard as much as possible so I can watch the movie for the first time as an audience member and and get an understanding. And it's crazy the um, the the value that that has just in in the way you imagined it and and uh, what you're going to need the, the one shot you're going to need to sell an entire sequence is something sometimes you won't even see until you've looked at the storyboards and you can sort of save yourself in the editing room trying to figure it out later by like you know getting to watch it once so i think that's the the, the thing that i would uh i would suggest any uh, newer filmmakers especially um save a little bit of money find a great hungry storyboard artist um that you can work with even a friend and 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 test it out ahead of time. I mean, that's why Pixar movies are so fucking good. <laughs> it's because they've storyboarded them 300 times and they've pushed them and they've pushed them until they're like finely tuned clocks. Yeah. And this is something that like, I think we can learn from as, as live action filmmakers, especially because the live action stuff is so high stakes. Like we only have a few days with a few actors and everything's so expensive. Yep. Like I think we could afford to spend a little bit more money planning. So then when we do get to set, we can actually, you know, at least at the bare minimum, get something good. And then we still have the freedom to, um, you know, do something great and like think outside the box. A hundred percent, dude. I mean, a big part of it for me was that it's pre-blocking. It's like when you're, when you're actually boarding things out, you actually have to think in your head, like, okay, what's the space like? Where are all these people going to be? And then you start asking yourself questions like, okay, so I'm focused on these two main characters, but there's four other fucking characters in the room. What are they mm -hmm. doing at the same fucking time? <laughs> and this is stuff that like, when I was a younger director, I remember my first film that I did and I was so innocent. First movie, I, I get there and I had storyboarded stuff out and I'm like, okay, I see this shot, I see this shot, I see this shot. And I had an actor just be like, how do you want me to walk in the room? And I was just like, Oh, fuck. That's right. That's my job. Like, how do I want you to walk in the Fuck. And then where? Oh, shit. You know, and I just had this sort of <laughs> yeah. moment of like, fuck. I, I was so focused on drawing like pretty little pictures that I wasn't thinking about blocking and I wasn't thinking about all that. And I find that I just started, I have the, no one's going to be able to see it. I'll show you. But I've got like these really cool little uh, articulable like action figures that are really awesome. And like mm -hmm. you can actually change their feet and everything. So like I'll go through and pose figures the way I see them and then take photographs of those figures from the angles that I want, even if it's just with my phone. And it's really mm -hmm. changing the way I board because then I can just trace those elements and like put all that stuff together. And it's That's really cool. I like that a lot. I'm yeah. going to do, do that. Dude, they're really cool. Like you get these little action figures and then you could start to really just as I'm like breaking down sequences and I'm, I'm trying to break down the beats for a scene, I'm just staring at these figures and I'm looking at them and I'm looking at these different angles and I could see all that stuff and I go, wouldn't it be fascinating if this person walked from here to here and then what if this person doesn't let that person move until that person gives them this bit of emotional context? Okay. Bup, 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 bup. And then it starts to fall like fucking Tetris and you're like, ah, ah here mm -hmm. it is. And this is the stuff that like geniuses are made of. No, it's not. It's just fucking homework. It's not, I haven't done any it's of just, this. <laughs> it's just homework. I mean, that's that's all of it. I, I I do dream of of getting to the point where I can just show up on set and just create it in the moment. And I, I think that there is something really beautiful and pure and probably uh, singular about being able to do that. Yeah. Um, but I think as long as we're in the space where we have no money, no time, and we're trying to accomplish 
something as ambitious as, as the kind of films that we're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of everything. Ho- homework is everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like, and it's, it's interesting. This is kind of going full circle back to what you're talking about with, with craft and, and horror being um, such a craft, like heavy genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lost my train of thought. I knew I was going to do it halfway through <laughs> talking to you about this. I was like, I'm going to lose my train of thought. I have, a, I, I know it's going to happen. Um, oh, I know. Okay. I got it. I'm back. Um, the, the adage that anybody can make a movie with their cell phone mm-hmm. on the weekend mm-hmm. could not be more untrue when it comes to a specific type of filmmaking. Yeah. And I say this being somebody who, who absolutely loves some of these films that were made with like two actors, uh, a car, uh, and an iPhone. I think there's some beautiful, amazing cinema made that way, um, and I'm a fan. But as far as being a creator, I, the things that I want to make and the things that make me excited, and I and I feel you're very much um, built of the same fabric, mm-hmm. is sort of these uh, bigger genre, fantasy, Spielbergian, fun uh, – I hate I hate the term popcorn movie because somehow that makes it feel disposable and I don't think it's disposable. I just think it's a different type of cinema, and that type of thing um, is the most complicated to make and 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 honestly the most expensive. So I'm not sure where horror got the got the um, reputation of being cheap. I guess just because you don't have to pay fancy actors, but nothing about horror from my experience is cheap. I would say it's significantly more expensive to make a horror movie. Um, actors aside, and so I think that that's a I don't know that's that's a weird that's just a weird um, mythos that like young film people are being fed that that anybody can make a movie um, right away and and get a career. I don't well, know. Yeah, I'm rambling now, but. no, you're but you're not, dude. Like, there, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think that I would expand on that by by saying that look, you could pick up a fucking camera, and you can get two people to pose in front of that camera, and you could spend a lot of time watching YouTube videos and going, okay, so here's how Fincher does his shots, and then replicate those shots. And if you're new to the industry and you're trying to learn, I suggest you do that because th- through the process of doing that, you're going to go, yeah, but this is this is this isn't my voice. This isn't what I want to do for stuff like i can replicate these people and i can replicate them pretty well but i accidentally started to get on this path that feels like something i really want to pursue and then you hit a point i hit a point where i went oh fuck i'm hitting a ceiling here i can only go so far because i physically am not an octopus i've only got fucking two hands so i can't do all this shit like physically i'm holding onto a camera trying to focus it and then trying to walk a fucking prop in there and i'm like i just need another guy to walk a prop in on this thing and then slowly exponentially that gets bigger where i just need three more guys to put a light on that fucking window and i just need this stuff and you start mm-hmm. to examine it and you go this is a fucking machine and it needs to be a machine to create those movies that you and i love so much ultimately it does and then like i like i i just recorded so I just recorded this episode, I think might be coming out before or after this, but then you start to look into the research of directing and, and then having my mind blown open by reading like directing actors by Judith Weston and reading all these mm, different books. And, book. and, and suddenly I'm like, holy shit, I have been for 20 years been weighing so heavily on just a fraction of what I'm supposed to be doing as a director. And so now that there's, there's this whole other world to it, 
that you can't get with just an iPhone into your friends. This is a world of like dealing with professional actors. This is a world of dealing with backstory and building texture. And you can't do all that if you're trying to light it, shoot it, act in it, and do all this stuff at the same time. I don't know how fucking Rodriguez does it. And honestly, I feel like a lot of his movies suffer because he does all that shit. And when he starts to do stuff like Alita, where he's just walking in as a director, you're like, there's a lot more refinement here because he has the time to do a lot more refinement. You know? I Side note, I love that movie. I don't know why people, more people are talking about that movie. That movie was so fun. Yeah, I thought it was great. Why, why, do people not like that movie? I don't understand. It was such a fun, like crazy. It did have a 90s vibe to it, which I thought was unusual for the future. But otherwise, it was like, it was such a kick-ass movie. I don't know. I don't know. Like, they were like, her, eye, her eyes are weird. <laughs> yeah. It, you know? But you're, you're, you're right, though. Like, I, I don't mean to, to say... People shouldn't go out and practice and shouldn't take their iPhone and their friends and, and learn the basics for sure. I just think when people when people are struggling to, to, to make movies they're passionate about and they've, they've been doing it for a while and somebody comes in and says, hey, man, all you need is an iPhone and your friends. Like th- That's where it like pisses me off a little bit. I'm like, no, we're not all making those kind of movies and nor should we. We should, we should be able to sort of express ourselves in any way and then come on a podcast and complain about it for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that about my show. It's that we ultimately end up, we end up bitching. Uh, but look. it's not our, but it's not our fault. That's the thing. It's it's like it, we're 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 cage. We're animals backed into a corner. Like of course we're gonna like yeah. talk about the struggle of being backed in the corner. It's the only thing that keeps us sane. Yeah, it's true, man. Well, look, I I'd love to keep going with you, but uh, I think we've hit this point. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and, it was so uh, much fun. if you guys, I'm going to have, uh, links to all his stuff below the episode. If you're looking to be surprised, if you're looking to go back in time and feel like you're watching a fun horror piece, uh, if you, if you've been depressed that Guillermo's not putting out a movie a year, <laughs> <laughs> then you should check out the mortuary collection. And I'm very excited, um, to see 50 stage of fright. I'm very excited to see your stuff on that. Um, and, uh, dude, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. Uh, the feeling is mutual, Mike. Thank you so much. Let's do it again. There it is. Me, Ryan, horror movies. Loved it. Great interview, right? I thought it was a really cool interview. It's always hard assessing your interview as you're doing your interview. And I find myself falling down the same sort of rabbit holes in the beginning, but I felt like we really got to a real honest and personal place as two directors trying to tell the type of movies that I don't want to say it this way, but like it just doesn't seem people are making. And it's not because you guys don't want them. I just think that they're hit this point where uh, production companies and studios were just hyper-focused on specific movies. And I think it's because of box office returns. Let's be honest, it's always been because of box office returns, right? This is the fastest way to make $100 million on a $3 million investment, right? You guys ever see Blair Witch? Boom, how much of that shit happened after that? Found footage movies is the wave of the future. Yeah, have you guys seen Hereditary? Boom, everything comes after that. And it's like, yes, those are great movies, 
They're fantastic films. They're a portion of what this genre can do. A portion of it. And I think what's lacking, and I know Ryan believes in the same thing, the adventure of watching a scary movie. The excitement of going to be scared. Just by technique and performance and story. The relief of sitting down to watch a movie without feeling guilty, without having social commentary put on it, just the love of cinema, the respect of the craft. And I'll tell you this, people walk out of those movies fucking cheering. And I'm excited to see Ryan's films. I think he's got a killer voice. I think his, his understanding of the craft is on point. And he's just a beautifully honest person about his love of films. So, like I said in the beginning of the episode, hopefully you guys stop the show and you watch the Mortuary Collection. I am keeping my eye out for the 50 States of Fright. That was on Quibi, but Quibi is no longer. And I know that Roku has now has, you know, Roku, the Roku devices, which I've always used. They now have their own channel, and I think they've been purchasing a lot of the Quibi stuff. And so that has been running on a Roku channel. I accidentally stumbled across it the other night, and I watched like that Kevin Hart and John Travolta show, which was pretty funny. Um, It's strange because it's all sort of formulated around like, I think it's like eight minutes or something, five minutes or eight minutes. Um, But uh, I can't wait to see Ryan's stuff because he is someone that is built for that format. He has such a respect for the short film medium. Um, And maybe I'll get him back on because I feel like this episode was the two of us just sort of first dating it. I think there's a lot, I think there's a deeper cavern that the two of us can go down into like how to tell a good story within a short period of time. Maybe we'll do another episode. What do you guys think? Did you like this episode enough? Do you think that our chemistry is enough on this show to have him come back? If you're listening to it right now, sign into Instagram, send me a note and say, Mike, get Ryan back. Or send me a note saying, Mike, you have no idea who we are as an audience. You obviously have no respect for us. You don't know what we fucking want. (laughs) Either way, communicate with me. So I don't feel like I'm alone talking in this microphone that goes nowhere. That there are people out there listening. I know you are. I love you guys. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for supporting the show for as long as you have. And do me a favor, write a review. Scroll down in whatever that medium that you're using to listen to this podcast. A lot of you guys are using Apple Podcasts. Go to my podcast page there and just scroll down. You're not going to have to go through hundreds of episodes. It eventually brings you to the review thing. Leave a review for the show. Let me know what you're thinking. And then let the fucking algorithm, let the... The T-8000 or T-1000 fucking know that you guys are listening to the show and other people should listen too. All right. That's it. My voice hurts. This is a good episode. I'll let you guys to go. Thank you for listening. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.
Let's <laughs> go.